Colossians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, well, maybe I should let you turn there, then pray. But let's, uh, let's just ask the Lord's blessing upon our time together, shall we? Lord, what a joy it is. What a privilege to be able to come to your word, to sit under it, to preach it, to know you through it, to meditate on the truths and the, the incredible riches of what you have granted to us because you've adopted us, because you've united yourself with us. Father, we just ask in this time that you'd open our hearts to receive this truth, to receive your word, to meditate on it, that it would change our lives because this is your intention for it. You are seeking change. You are seeking those who will worship you in spirit and truth. And we just ask, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would work in us, that your spirit would draw our attention to areas of life we need to modify. And may our hearts be exalted toward you. May they be lifted up to recognize the vastness, the riches of what you've done for us. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Sociologists, always a word, <laughs> worst way to start a sermon, right? Sociologists. Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, two sociologists, they wrote a book examining the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. They surveyed about 3,000 teenagers and they asked them what they believe. And they came up with a list of five things which the average teenager believes in terms of, and this really represents their understanding of Christianity. Firstly, they believe that God exists, one who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, they believe that God wants people to be good and nice and fair to one another. Thirdly, they thought that the central goal of life was to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Fourthly, they said that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifthly, good people go to heaven when they die. Well, I'm sure you're a well-taught group, and I'm sure that as you listen to this list, you're thinking, wait a minute. This doesn't sound quite right. Clearly, their understanding of Christianity is lacking. It falls short of what the Word of God teaches us. But when we think about it, sometimes we think of Christianity in similar terms. We want a God who will give us rules to live by. We in the West tend to like an ordered world. So we want a God who will give us order, who is, who is, who is um, good and moral, who will uh, not always, you know, though we don't want him always to enforce those rules or look away, and we want him to kind of look away when he, we break them, but that when we're wronged, he will right those wrongs. That's kind of what we want. And he will vindicate the way people treat us. He will, he will deal justice to those who treat us badly. And we want a God who will reward us for our good deeds. And, you know, a God who is moral, who really, who makes moral people feel good about their morality. That's the kind of God we sometimes want. And if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of think of God sometimes that way. Sometimes 
we kind of think of God as a God who, who understands us and who will listen to our desires and outcomes and concerns. We want a God who will help us to fix our problems, who will listen to us, who knows how hard life is. We want a God who will justify the rest that we take and say, you work hard, you should take a rest. You deserve a rest. We want a God who will say to us, you know, who, who will really in some ways function as a personal therapist. And if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of think about God sometimes in therapeutic terms. Sometimes we think of God as a, just a being who is all-powerful, and, but who's not really terribly involved, like a cosmic Santa Claus who gives us things when we ask him, someone who will help us to explain how we got here, and therefore, because he made us, that gives us meaning and purpose. Sometimes we, you know, we want him to be involved to a limited extent in our lives, but not so much that he doesn't not respect our independence. We want a God who is kind of transcendent, but not near. Sometimes we tend to think of ourselves, if we're honest, so we think of, think, tend to think of God as a, a deity who's out there, but not here. This set of ideas has kind of been termed moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's not Christianity. It's a thin veneer painted over Christianity which, which molds our thinking but keeps God far enough away from us that we can do our own thing and act independently. We tend to regard the Christian life this way sometimes. Sometimes we think of Christianity is something we add to our lives. As we're going through life, we're doing our thing, and we want God to come along and help us to do better things and make our life go better. So we add him to our lives as if he's gonna fix things or make us feel better or order our life or provide us with answers. But this is nothing like the God of the Bible. This is nothing like the Christianity we read in the Word of God. In the Bible, when we read about our relationship with Christ, we hear terms such as in Christ, with Christ, in Him. And these are really designed to summarize our reality, our experience. This is speaking of a unity we have with Christ. So it's not so much that God is outside of us and away from us. It's more like this woman, this old widow in England at the end of the 19th century thought. See, she was a Christian lady, lived on her own, and her neighbors would torment her and just really hassle her about being a Christian. And they would try and test her commitment to him. And one day, it so happened that in those days, Queen, queen Victoria was the queen, and she had a habit of occasionally stopping by the homes of people who came to, you know, who just lived in her kingdom. And so one day she stopped by this lady's home and she spent some time there. They had some Christian fellowship and enjoyed their short time together. But then later on, this poor old widow was being taunted by her worldly neighbors again. And they were saying, okay, who is the most honored guest that you've had in your home? And of course, they expected with her being such a spiritual person that she would say, well, Christ, of course, is the most, visit, most uh, honored guest I've ever had. But she said to their surprise, the most honored guest I've entertained is Her Majesty the Queen. 
And they stopped and they said, wait, wait, the queen? But what about this Jesus you keep telling us about? Isn't he the most honored guest you've ever had? And she said, no. No, he's not a guest. He lives here. And then those hecklers were silent. You see, that is the nature of our Christianity. It's not an add-on to our lives. It's a replacement. It's a union. It's a joining of two, two lives together. Sounds like marriage, doesn't it? Funny that. Uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. But here we say in, in chapter 3, verse 1, let's read through this passage here. In Colossians chapter 3, we read there, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So here in our text here, Paul is taking this concept of union with Christ, and he's trying to say, given you've been united with Christ, and, and up to this point, he's taken us through what it means to be united with Christ in his death, and now he's saying this is what it means to be united with Christ in his resurrection. And so he's giving us here, he's telling us two practical consequences of being raised with Christ. Two practical consequences from these verses that help us to understand what it means and how to live based on being the fact that we've been raised with Christ. First of all, he starts with the phrase there, if you have been raised with Christ. And we kind of sometimes glance over this and think it kind of is just thrown in there and, and doesn't really you know, we, we skip over it. In fact, the whole doctrine of our union with Christ is one that we, never, we, we seldom hear about in church. It's a, it's a heavy doctrine that is very difficult sometimes to get our heads around. But here, I just want to give you a little brief uh, explanation of it. First of all, the Word of God gives us four illustrations that we find throughout the Scriptures, really, of, um, of what it means to be united with Christ. The first of these is in Ephesians chapter 2, and he speaks there in Ephesians 2, likening union with Christ to a building and its cornerstone. So in the old days, we don't do this anymore because we just pour a foundation out of concrete, but in the old days, they used to take a stone and they used to make this stone would be the beginning of the building. So you'd put the stone in the ground and then you'd put your corner, your first two um, walls would be started on that stone. The rest of the building then would be oriented entirely around that around that stone. So the stability, the direction, and the, uh, the size of that stone would be the determining factors for the building. So the Bible talks about the fact that we are a building and Christ is our cornerstone. We our world revolves around him. The building is based on him as the beginning point. The second illustration we get is in John 15. In John chapter 15, we get the idea that union with Christ is like a vine and the branches. And John's concern there is to tell us that we, if, if we as believers want to bear fruit, we need to be attached to the vine. 
if we are not, if we do not have the sap of the vine flowing through the branches, we cannot bear fruit. So the union we have with Christ illustrated there really tells us that for us to bear fruit, which which is a whole bunch of different things in the New Testament, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of new believers, and so on. If we want to bear fruit, we are dependent on Christ. Thirdly, in 1 Corinthians 12, union with Christ is likened to the human body. There, it's the idea of Christ is the head and we are the members. The members of the body, of course, do whatever the head wants. So the head sets the goals, the head sets the desires, the head plans, and the body goes along with it. So that's the third illustration. And the fourth one is one we find in Ephesians 5 and and a bunch of other places. We'll touch on this more. And that is the idea of union with Christ being likened to marriage. I touched on this before. I was almost using marriage language. We, the two, become one in marriage. And as in Christ, we become one with him. And this is really telling us, this idea of marriage is telling us really that there's a relationship, first of all. Being a Christian is about having a relationship with Christ and not just any relationship. If we think about the properties of marriage, we remember that it's monogamous, solitary, one partner only. This faithfulness is is important. We also remember that it's an intimate relationship. All these things are equally true of our union with Christ. And not only that, but just as marriage has consummation, so too our union with Christ has consummation. In fact, union with Christ is so important that one theologian said that it's really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's not, it's not something we add on. This is the core of our salvation, is the fact that we are united with Christ. It's a little bit like the hub of a wheel, and all the spokes come out from the hub and form the wheel, but the, the hub of the wheel is union with Christ. That union with him is the foundation and the beginning point for all of our theology about salvation. And so as Paul comes here on chapter three, verse one, if you've been raised with Christ, he's been explaining this throughout chapter one and two. And in chapter two, he starts off by explaining that our union with Christ is founded on the union of God coming and uniting himself with man in Christ. In fact, in John 1, 14, we read the word became flesh. And in 1, 16, he says, of his fullness, the fullness of Christ, we have all received. So in other words, for us, anything we receive from Christ and our union with Christ is founded in the fact that God, first of all, condescended himself to joining himself to man. Secondly, Colossians has already explained that we're united with Christ in his death and his burial. And then thirdly, as we come here, we see that we're united with him in his resurrection. And this really has the idea, these, these ideas is that when, when Christ began his suffering on the cross, God built a spiritual union between you and him. And in that spiritual union, your sins were given to him. They became his sins. It's a joining. We're not talking about a swap. 
We're not talking about, you know, the idea of imputation is not taking Christ's righteousness and throwing them over the fence to some other being over here and saying, there we go, let's just, let's just think of it this way. No, God has joined us to Christ so that our sin becomes his, so that his righteousness becomes ours. All that Christ is, is now ours. And all that we have, which is nothing, in fact, it's just our sin, became his, and he was punished, bearing that sin. And his punishment was effective. He was justly punished. He satisfies the wrath of God. And because of that, because of that, he can rise from the dead. Death can no longer hold him. And so we, being joined with him in his death, are also joined with him in his resurrection. And this has huge ramifications. This, is, this changes everything about us because we're no longer just ourselves. We're no longer a unique, unique individual that's just like plodding along with no help and no connection. No, we are joined with Christ. Where we go, Christ goes. If you rem- do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter six, Paul says not to commit sexual immorality because in doing so, you join the members of Christ in that sin. That's how intimately you are joined with Christ. This has big implications. One of them is that the fall, if you remember the fall of man, Adam, before he fell, had this idea, well, had the, had the ability to not sin. Have you ever considered that? He could make choices that were general, genuinely non-sinful. But then he sinned, and he exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. From that point on, he was no longer able to not sin. But in Christ, because we're joined with him in his death and in his resurrection, now we are able to not sin. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you, and he has broken the power of sin, you are now able to choose not to sin. It's a little bit like marriage. In fact, it's a lot like marriage. When you get married, your wife or your husband, let's say husband because I'm a guy, your husband's debt becomes your debt, right? You, you can't avoid that. You're joined, all that is his is yours, and if he's got debt, that's now your debt. Similarly, if there's wealth, you know, you got to marry up well or whatever it is, guys, you know, and all, all the, the wealth and all the privilege and all the relationships that, that you marry into also becomes yours. This is exactly the same thing. And so because Christ overcame the grave, we too can now overcome sin. And you might ask, well, how? How can we do this? Well, this is exactly the the point Paul is trying to make. In light of the fact that you've been raised with Christ, therefore, he says in verse one, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the idea here is not a test. It's not saying if you've been raised with Christ. I'm not sure if you have, and just if you have, this is the case. No, that was in chapter two, verse 20. Here, since you've been raised with Christ, this is the way to live. If you today, sitting here this morning, are united with Christ, this is how we are to live. He says, first of all, to seek the things that are above. What's up above? Well, we just learned that we were united with him in his resurrection. 
Christ is our life. He is above. Wherever he goes, we will be. We will one day be with him forever. We will be forever with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So Christ is up there. Now, right now, we read in Psalm 110, right? You've read Psalm 110. My Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, that's where Christ is now. That is Christ right now. He died, he ascended back into heaven. He rose, he died, he went into heaven. And now he's sitting at the right hand of God in glory. It's a position of power. It's a position of prominence. It's a position of strength. It's a position of privilege and favor. And it's also your position and my position. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul tells us that when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive, here's that language again, together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and he raised us up with him and then what? He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see what's happening here? There's this union that happened. The fact that we have now been joined to him Part of us is in heaven. Our reality, here and now, what you see in your life, when others look at you, what they see, it's the tip of the iceberg concerning who you are. As Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God, we too are in him at the right hand of God. There is a position of privilege which we have now, which we have not fully realized. And so we are to seek those things that are above. Seek the things pertaining to that life. Notice in verse two, not the things that are on earth. And there's the contrast. Here's the contrast. You, our task is to keep our focus not on the things that are on earth, but the things that are in heaven. Our, our goal what he's trying to do with us is trying to call us to focus on what's important. See, the things in above are important, of ultimate importance, because God is of ultimate importance. The things here on earth, in light of the ultimate, are trivial. I mean, when we think about Christ, when we think about his resurrection, when we think about his coming back, when we think about the purposes of God in this world and all that he's going to do, how important really is it whether person X likes you? How important is it really that you didn't pay the bill on time for the power and it was two days late? How important really is it that you're successful in your career? I saw a bumper sticker this morning, and it said, if you don't like what man is doing with the world, why do you see what God has in store, right? When we recognize the, the, the greatness of what God is doing, then the triviality of this world should be plain. And what he's trying to focus us here is on what is important, not what is urgent. In Philippians chapter three, verse 20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Let's say, for instance, you leave the United States. Not for long. You, you, you decide to take a holiday, right? And you choose some beautiful, exotic country to go to, say, New Zealand, you know. <laughs> and while you're there, 
A disaster happens back in the United States. An earthquake strikes. Are you going to carry on as if nothing happened? Because your home is in California, your heart's going to be in California. Because your loved ones are there, that's what you're going to be focused on. Because your family is in the disaster zone, your concern is about what's going on back home. As nice as New Zealand is, and I hope you all come, you're just passing through. Your real home is not there. It's back in the United States. And so it should be for each of us. This world is not our home. This is the tip of the iceberg. What we love is in heaven. Therefore, the focus of our lives, we should be seeking what is above. Our home is in heaven. It's our future. Our Lord is in heaven. Our life is in heaven. Our destiny is in heaven. Not here. The focus, the, the things we are to seek are those things that relate to that life. And then he says in verse two, set your mind on things above. Why would he say set your mind on things above? Hasn't he just kind of said seek the things above? What do, what do we do here? Is it one or the other? And the answer is yes. You do both. The reality is, as Henry Skugel once said, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. What you love is going to be the thing that occupies your mind. What occupies your mind is going to be what determines the direction of your life. If your mind is stuck on earth, your life will be about earth. And so he says, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. Seek the things that are above. You see what he's saying? Where your mind is focused, there your heart and your, your life will follow. As we read through the Bible, we find a huge focus on your mind. Romans chapter 12, verse two, be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. It's only as our minds are transformed that we can, according to that verse, it's talking about God's will. Then you'll be able to approve what the will of God is. It's only as our mind is transformed that we can live out God's will. You can't live out what you don't know. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As our minds are transformed, we can approve of God's plan. You don't like what God's doing in this world? Is it his plan or your thinking that's the problem? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's only as our minds are transformed that we can fully agree with all that God is doing with his world. Secondly, not only are we to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, but Philippians 4.8 says that we are to set our minds on the things that are good, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and worthy of praise. Think on these things. Dwell on them. Give careful thought and consideration to them. Romans 8 verse 5, those who live according to the flesh, uh, sorry, according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. 
where your mind is, what occupies your thinking determines what you're seeking. It tells you the focus of your life. And the the goal that we've got here, the task that God has given to us is to be focused not on what's urgent, not on what is here, but on what's important, what is ultimately important. The Bible doesn't just talk about the mind of the believer, but also the mind of the unbeliever. It tells us in Romans 1.28 that God gives the unsaved over to a depraved mind. Or in Romans 6, 8, uh, 6, 6, the mind set on the flesh is what? Death. Or in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, those who are the enemies of God set their minds on earthly things. Which are you? What do you occupy your mind with? I know this is hard. I know these things, that, I know that changing thought habits is hard work. We leave school. This is the tendency we have. We leave school and we stop reading and writing. You know, with the modern technology, we swap the Bible for videos. We swap hearing the word for listening to music. We swap, you know, we focus on what's easy and we sacrifice hard work. We follow on our feelings and we, we don't, and we focus on what we feel like doing and we forget about God's principles. But here's some encouragement. If you're united with Christ, if you're in union with Christ, remember I said everything that he has becomes ours. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter two, Paul says you have the mind of Christ. Is it possible having the mind of Christ for your mind to be focused on God, for your mind to be drawn to heaven? Do you think the mind of Christ is focused on this world? Do you think it's distracted by all these little trinkets and things that call upon us and and draw our attention? And I say here that we're to focus on what is important, not what's urgent. And the reason for that is that this world has a really great habit of creating urgency. I mean, the telephone. How many of you can actually let the telephone ring? In fact, so many of us are so hopeless at letting the telephone ring that we can't even, we will actually use an answer phone to make sure that even if we can't answer it, it will get answered. Urgent things are the things that require our immediate attention. Urgent things are the things that act on us. They call us to do their bidding. They are the things that are visible. They are the things that are often popular with other people. What other people want from you is often urgent, but not always important. Urgent things are the things that are in our face. Urgent things are often pleasant or easy or fun, but urgent things are not ultimately important. So here, what God is calling us to do is to focus on the things that are above, what is ultimately important, not the things that are here on earth, which is trivial and urgent. There's a story of a man called George Hatch, and he raised a family of seven boys and five girls on a farm. And it was haymaking season one time, and the day before, they'd just cut the grass, and that was on the Saturday, and the next morning, on the Sunday morning, as they woke up, storm clouds were coming in. And the neighbors saw the predicament. 
And he said, he came over to Mr. Hatch and he said, hey, let's get your hay in so that it doesn't get ruined. And Mr. Hatch calmly said to him, thank you for your offer, but it's Sunday. Today, my priority is to take my family to church, to nourish them in the word of God and to make sure that they hear God speaking to them. And the neighbor said, but you'll lose your hay. The neighbors, uh, the hatches rather, they went to church and the rainstorm did indeed spoil the hay. And the neighbor said to him later on, see, I told you that you'd lose your hay. To which Mr. Hatch replied to him, yes, I lost my hay, but I saved my family. See, his priority, and I don't want to make too much out of going to church, but his, he was faithful to prioritize what was ultimately important over what was urgent. His faithfulness, his prioritization, this is the pattern of his life. It ended up being that through his spiritual integrity before the Lord, through his faithful planning, through his focus on what was important, he saw by the grace of God, his children come to Christ and their children come to Christ and their children come to Christ. As we focus on what's truly important, God works in that faithfulness. That's what he's calling you and I to do. We are to focus on what is important, not on what is urgent. Secondly, we're to focus on what is coming, not what is now. Look at verses three and four. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice there in verse three, the first thing he does is he goes back to your having died. And as we go through Colossians two, there are four previous implications from having died with Christ that are worth just bringing out quickly. First one is that because Christ died and we're united with him, the power of sin is broken. The power of sin is the law. The law is fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, sin has no power over us. Secondly, we've walked away voluntarily. Our own hearts have walked away from our own life. When we say we've died, we're referring back to the time when we were, when we were immersed into Christ's death. This is reflected in baptism. Baptism is something that you and I choose to submit ourselves to. And in, that, in, that, in baptism, we identify ourselves as having been united with Christ which means we say, Christ died and I was united with him in his death. I've received forgiveness of sins, but I'm also walking away from the old life. I volunteer to see that life as dead. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. See, he saw himself purposefully as having died. So the power of sin is broken. We've walked away from the old life. We've also been forgiven. Christ cleanses us from our sin because he's punished. He takes it on himself and he received the full punishment for our sin. And finally, the law is fulfilled for us. So these are the four things that are sitting there in this idea of you have died. And Paul's point really is that the world all that you used to be, your life as it was, with all its sin, with all that separated you from God, it's history. It's gone. God has put it away, and you've put it away. You have died with him. Therefore, you need a life. 
Because if you've died, then what? And so Paul carries on and he says, your life is Christ. Christ, who is your life? You see the, the exchange here? Sometimes when we think of the idea of regeneration, we think of it as if God sticks some new thing in us. And, you know, we read this, the passage in, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You know, anyone who's in Christ, he's a new creature, right? But notice that. In Christ, you're a new creature. God doesn't stick a new creature in you. It's not like aliens where the little creature pops out of your chest. That's not what he's getting at here. Christ is your life. There is still a life in the flesh, but then you live that on the basis of faith in the Son of God. And so that, and that piece of us is renewed as that life comes to live in us. As Christ lives in us, he renews the fleshly life which we have. So Christ is our life. And the important thing, as I mentioned earlier, is that it says there in verse four, when, sorry, in verse three rather, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. You know, there was a time 2,000 years ago where if you could get a teleporter or a time machine and hop in it and go back, you know, 2,000 years to when Christ was on earth, you would be able to stand on the road to Galilee and watch him walk by. You could stand at the foot of the cross and see him die. You could be in the upper room and listen as the conversation went on. You could be on the Sermon on the Mount and see him and hear him. We can't do that now. Christ still lives, but he is hidden in God. That's what this verse is saying. And what he's saying here is that your life is hidden with Christ. Just as we cannot see the fullness of who Christ is. Remember him reigning, his, his power, his privilege, the, the position of favor he occupies at the right hand of God. It's all hidden. So too, the fullness of who you are is hidden. What I see, what you see, when we look at one another, is not all of the reality of who you are. That's the tip of the iceberg. It's gonna get better. When Christ, who is your life, appears. See this? There's an appearing. This hidden state, this state where we are what we are and we can't see it all and we don't see Christ, this is all just temporary. There is coming a time where Paul says that we will have all things revealed. In fact, he talks in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 about all things being summed up in Christ. And here what we find is that when Christ appears, when that fullness of time comes, and when he finally comes and the, the time is full, then we will be revealed with him in glory. Until then, we wait. But that does not change the fact that we are united with him. One of the most important images that the Bible uses to speak of our union with Christ is marriage. And in Ephesians, sorry, Romans chapter 7, Paul says, he explains that a married woman is bound to her husband while He's alive. But once death comes, that marriage union is broken because the law no longer has jurisdiction. And he says, so too you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to the one who was raised from the dead, 
See, we've been united with him in the same way a marriage has been united. In fact, it goes beyond that. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul speaks about marriage and he explains that Christ gave himself to sanctify the church. He says that Christ gave himself to present the church to himself in splendor. This is the mystery of Christ and the church. This marriage idea This whole concept of marriage in the New Testament is a reflection of the union that we have with Christ. But this union has not been fully consummated. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Christ, remember, is going to present himself to the, present the church to himself without spot, blameless. And when, so when we read in chapter 19, go to chapter 19, verse 6. Paul says there, uh, sorry, not Paul, John, wrong half of the first century. When I heard what seemed to be the voice, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, he reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, Because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is what Christ is looking forward to. This is the time when Christ presents himself, presents the church to himself. But look also at the same time, the bride has made herself ready. So there's this, there's this concept of union even here that the, the bridegroom is preparing the bride, yet the bride is preparing herself. Both are true. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What's really interesting here is that if we scroll forward <laughs> in your iPads, If we scroll forward, if we look forward over a few verses to verse 11, we read about the second coming of Christ. Have you ever noticed how close those two things are? The marriage supper of the Lamb, the return of Christ. Remember in Colossians, we're talking about when Christ, who is your life, returns, you will appear with him in glory. Here it is. This is his appearing. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one else knows but himself. This is Christ coming in glory. This is the Lord appearing to all creation in that one last time where the fullness of his glory, where the revelation of who he is at the right hand of God is revealed to everyone. And look at the next verse. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. What were they arrayed in? Fine linen. Bright, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. The last time we saw people clothed like this was the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, what he's showing us here is that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. 
united with him, having been fully married, having that consummation fully achieved. When Christ, who is our life, appears, where will you be? You will be right there with him. You will be united with him. You will be joined to him. We will be participating in his life. We will be dependent upon him. But even more, in that same passage we were just reading, the very next verse says that Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron. In Revelation chapter 2, Christ promises to those who overcome, I will give to you to rule the nations with a rod of iron. We will rule with him. We will be with him in glory. We'll be reigning with him. We will no longer be just this shell. The fullness of who we will be will be fully realized, fully manifest. This is a consequence of us being joined to him, even right now. With our union with Christ and his resurrection, it provides us with these two consequences. We're to focus our, our mind, our, our lives on what is important, not what's urgent. And we're to focus on what is coming, not what's now. As you can see, as we think through this, as we think about that final revelation, how important is it? The little things we struggle with in this life, they fade into insignificance. The reason that that is possible is because already now we are joined with him. Our current goals are no longer earthly. Our life is not here. Our concerns are not worldly. Our orientation is now around Christ. How do we do this? How do we make sure this is our, the way our life goes? Well, we just set our minds on things above. Where your mind is, that's where your direction of your life will go. Remember, when you were united with Christ, the power of sin in your life was broken. You were given a new direction, a new orientation. Our focus is not this world, but the next and it doesn't matter whether you live or die because that is our hope. John says everyone who has this hope purifies himself. As we close, I just wanna ask you to think with me for a moment just about, you know, and I know that there's a lot of guys in the room, so this is kind of a little weird. But pretend for a moment that you're a wife and you're married to somebody who, who works on an oil rig. And I don't know that there's many people here who have a husband who works on an oil rig, so that's fine. But he's away from home for months at a time. You hardly see him. What are you gonna do while he's away? Are you gonna, I mean, the reality is that you're still married, right? You're still united, you're still one. How should you live based on that reality? Well, you know he's coming back. You know your husband will return, so you're going to live chaste, devoted to your husband. You're going to focus your attention on that return time. You're going to busy yourself with the responsibilities that he has given you around the home. You're going to focus on your family. You're going to have your focus and your desire is going to be to please him so that when he comes back, he finds you having done all that he wanted. 
And I know it seems a little weird to think this way if you're a guy, but the reality is that you and I, we are the church, the bride of Christ. Our bridegroom is not here. How do we live? How do we live today based on the reality that we are united with Christ who is not here, but who is coming back? Is your focus bound up with this union? Is that the direction of your mind and your your life? Is your concern with yourself or with what he's given you to do? Are you living based on individualistic ideals or are you focused on the fact that you're joined to him and therefore we're joined to one another? Do you concern yourself with what he has given you to do? Do you set your mind on him? Do you think about his values, his commands, his desires, his interests, or, or your own? Are you living now like he will return? Are you living now with the world as your life or with the next life as your life? Do you look forward to his return? Do you ponder the wonder of eternally being united with Christ? Do you focus on what is coming or do you focus on what is now? Because we were raised with Christ, eternally united with us, with him, we are to focus on what is important, not what's urgent. We are to focus on what is coming, not what is now. See, union with Christ, our union with Christ is the impetus to our sanctification and Christian living. Pray with me. Lord, it is our joy to think on these things. And Lord, what a wonder it is that you have all this world plan, this whole plan of salvation, and in the midst of it, you took an individual sinner like me and like everyone here and those who have been bound to you, you joined us to your son that we could forever be yours and that you could forever be ours. Lord, we just ask, work this truth into our hearts that we would be people who are transformed by the truth of your word, that we would live with an eternal focus, not a temporal one, and we would live for your glory, not our own. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.